This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Craft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 148. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Now, quick reminder from uh, last week, uh, we announced our next virtual event, the SNN Network Canada Virtual Event, which will be taking place January 6 and 7, 2021, with lead sponsor Small Cap Discoveries, one of the leading Canadian small micro and nano cap newsletters. We've teamed up to highlight our neighbors to the north, Canada. We have our initial speakers up there right now, so be sure to check them out. Many more speakers will be announced, and the presenting company lineup is already filling up quickly. So I'm, I'm really pumped on what we have lined up for you all. And be sure to register now on Canada.SNN.Network to join us for this incredible microcap event to kick off 2021. Again, go to Canada.SNN.Network. This week from the SNN Podcast Network, we have the following shows coming up. Starting with In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fiore, they discuss the value versus growth trade, reflation, and much more. They go through the various scenarios and what's been happening in the markets post-election and post-vaccine news. So check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. We have a solid show on tap for the Investors Roundtable as well. This week's topic is understanding healthcare and life sciences. With the recent clinical trials results from Pfizer and Moderna on COVID vaccines, I thought this would be a great opportunity to chat about how to evaluate this sector. You can watch this episode on the SNN Network YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash SNNWire. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Sri Viswanathan. He is the founder and CIO of SVN Capital. With a long-term investment horizon, SVN Capital constructs a concentrated global value equity portfolio designed to achieve capital appreciation by minimizing risk and avoiding permanent loss of capital, according to the company's website. Sri is truly passionate about investing, and it was a pleasure learning more about his investing philosophy and criteria. Thank you again for tuning into episode 148 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Sri Viswanathan. everybody to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and I'm very excited to share with you our guest that we have today. It is Sri Viswanathan. He is from SV 
and Capital, uh, part of the family over at, at Willow Oak Asset Management. And we're very excited to have him on today. So Shree, with that, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm uh, excited to be uh, here and speaking with you. Appreciate it. No, absolutely. I'm excited to learn a little bit more about your story and SVN and also how you became a San Francisco Giants fan. We're going to have to talk about that. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, let, let's start with your background. All right. So where did your passion for investing begin? Sure. Um, let me, uh, I always try and kind of uh, connect uh, three dots, one from the past to the present and um, possibly talking a little bit about the future as well. So this question is about the past. So I'm originally from India, from the southern part of India. Uh, came here as a graduate student in uh, accounting and uh, pursued that in the mid-90s. I was working for an insurance company in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, and that's when I sort of uh, uh, realized I had this uh, uh, immediate urge to pursue a slightly different path going towards corporate finance. What happened there was in August of 1995, MyCube was right next to the investment team's cube, and they were talking a lot about uh, one Mr. Warren Buffett who had bought this Geico, uh, this big insurance company. And, uh, you know, Des Moines is about three-hour drive from Omaha. A lot of people were going back and forth. The investor day. I didn't know anything about all these things until that particular day when this big announcement came, and something in me started, you know, churning, and uh, I started thinking about uh, corporate finance. So uh, decided to go to B school. I'd already finished my master's. Decided to go to B school and get an MBA. I went to University of Chicago, um, a city that I was somewhat familiar with. Obviously, the school that I was a lot more familiar with. So. Decided to go there, and I actually became an investment banker, um, doing uh, M&A in the financial services area first at Alex Brown, when that was a standalone investment bank in Baltimore. And then, um, because Alex Brown went through a couple of changes, it was acquired by Bankers Trust, which in turn was acquired by Deutsche Bank. There were some serious uh, turnover within the Baltimore office. The head of M&A. Uh, and uh, Alex Brown moved over to Thomas Weisel in San Francisco to set up the mergers and acquisitions team uh, within Thomas Weisel. He picked up five, six of us to go with him. I made the cross-continent move to go there. And that's the reason why you see that San Francisco Giants flag behind My kids, both kids are big fans very, of San Francisco. It's very and, important. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you you connected the dots there. That, that was the most important thing that I needed to understand. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I was a banker, and a banker's life is treacherous, and uh, decided to move over to being a principal advisor as opposed to an agent uh, doing mergers and acquisitions for a bank in San Francisco, Union Bank of California. Did that for a few years, and then I had an opportunity to come to Chicago to set up a small hedge fund focused on financial services. So, uh, you know, soon after that, uh, joined uh, advisory research where I spent about 10 years. Much of what I know about investing, value investing, long-term thinking and all that um, comes from uh, late Mr. David Heller, the founder of advisory research, who uh, took me under his wing and uh, 
that's where I spent a big chunk of my time. Uh, we'll go into more of the details as to some of my past and my learnings and all that, I'm sure, as we go along in this, in this discussion. So that's where I started. And a couple of years ago, I set up uh, SVM Capital, bringing a bunch of my uh, uh, capital markets experience, my uh, intense desire to uh, uh, continue to learn and uh, sort of put that to work. Uh, SVM Capital today is a concentrated, global, long-only portfolio with the objective of uh, doubling capital over a business cycle. We'll come back to that later, I'm sure. But uh, that's where I am today. Very good. So, so when you're doing capital finance and and really kind of as an investment banker, I mean, did did you find yourself so many times just like uh, I just want to I just want to build my own portfolio, build my own book, and just pick my own stocks right now? I mean, I'm sure that went through your mind constantly. Absolutely. Um, and as I said, I'm originally from the southern part of the country. My maternal grandfather back in India, uh, he graduated from high school and that's all he was able to go through. But then um, uh, he was one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the family, moved over to what is today called as Mumbai, uh, which is the commercial capital of the country and set up this pharmaceutical operation. It was very successful. I'm sure uh, part of that desire to go on my own is a sort of a strand of gene from that uh, pool. Um, but uh, to answer your specific question, you know, when you're sitting in front, I was, uh, I was an associate um, both at uh, Alex Brown and at uh, Thomas Weisel um, during those, you know, booming deal times. They were handling somewhere between three to six deals at a time. And uh, when I say the banker's life is treacherous, it's only slightly better than um, the legal profession. Um, but uh, when you're sitting in front of your computer adjusting business models at 3, 3.30 in the morning, you definitely become a philosopher. Um, I went through that process, learned a lot uh, through that process. It taught me a lot about finance, taught me a lot about how boardroom discussions ensue, how decisions are made with respect to capital, and uh, many other facets with respect to capital markets. Um, but uh, truly speaking, you know, looking back, every single uh, organization that I've been part of post my uh, MBA has either been was acquired either while I was there or soon after I left. And uh, in 2010, uh, advisory research was acquired by Piper Jaffray, the uh, investment banker of uh, Minneapolis. That's exactly when I knew I wanted to manage money on my own. I always had this intense interest to invest and uh, manage money. I was already managing it on that platform, on a couple of different platforms. But uh, to be very specific, 2010 is when I uh, you know, decided I'm sure I'm going to manage money on my own terms. Got it. All right. So, I mean, so really throughout this whole time, you had your own portfolio of stocks that you were, that you had, that you were managing on your own. So it's not like you, you were doing all this and then decided, okay, now I'm doing this on my own and we're managing money and that's happening. So you're doing it the whole time. Right. Right. So uh, as a banker and as a M&A executive, you know, 
it was very specific project oriented. But as a portfolio manager, um, managing financial services portfolio, or even after that as a generalist, yeah, I was being, I've been managing money for the last 15 years on a couple of platforms. And this is sort of an extension of those, uh, of those types of experiences, except the style and the approach is quite a bit different. Got it. All right. So then, so all this then led to your founding of SVN Capital. So exactly when did you found that and what was some of your reasonings for setting it up the way you did? Yeah. So, um, um, this was uh, late 2018 is when I set up SVN Capital. There are a couple of different, uh, uh, you know, avenues within SVN Capital. I started off in 2018 with separately managed structure. And uh, January of this year, they set up a partnership structure as well. Exactly same set of securities, same approach. It's just that it's in a partnership uh, platform. So um, why did I, you know, what are the basic uh, tenets and why did, how did I set up SVN Capital? I'd say there are, you know, primarily uh, three different tenets. Um, number one is concentration. Number two is a uh, long time horizon. I'll come back to each one of them with a little bit more detail. And number three is global. So why, why are those three important? If you, if you actually go back and look at, uh, you know, people generally use S&P as the proxy for market. If we go back in time and look at the market, it's generally uh, being about eight and a half to nine percent, depending upon when you start in terms of annual return. Um, you know, there was, uh, years ago, there was this big philosopher um, and a good writer, Zig Ziglar. Uh, he actually said, if you do not have an objective, you will hit it every time. And so uh, I set it up with an objective of doing something better than the market. And what does that mean? Well, um, business cycle, and notwithstanding what we went through up until March of this year with this most recent cycle, has been typically about five to seven years. So my objective has been to sort of do much better than the market, but over a long time horizon, I'll come back to that. The time horizon is about five to seven years. And doubling capital within five to seven years in uh, quantitative terms, it translates into 10 to 15% per year. Obviously not in a linear fashion. Um, that's the objective. So, uh, you know, why is that important? Why is concentration important? Um, you know, uh, concentration by itself doesn't necessarily... Uh, guarantee positive or great returns, but I sincerely believe that excessive diversification most likely will lead, will lead, will lead to mediocre performance. Just the, uh, you know, I'm a one-man investment committee, and I would like to keep it that way. Uh, there is, uh, you know, structural and physical limitation in how many businesses, how many business models an individual can uh, continue to monitor and perform. Um, that's one, but uh, it is also true that based on evidence from you know a long history of other uh, managers, you just need a handful of businesses to create true wealth, and that's a big positive. Um, and so um, the approach is to keep it as a fairly concentrated portfolio, 
allowing me to kind of uh, perform over a long stretch of time. And that long time horizon is the second tenet. You know, uh, to hit my objective, I'm looking for certain specific tools. One of them is this uh, power of compounding. You know, allow me to digress for a quick second. If we actually take a penny from a, a, a penny and then double it every day. So if it was a penny yesterday, it's two today, uh, four tomorrow, eight, 16. By the 30th day, take a wild guess as to what that becomes. You probably already know the answer. I wish I did. I was trying to do it quickly in my head just now. So what, like, okay. I, would say, I would say 10 bucks, close. <laughs> Pretty close. It's actually $10.7 million. That's the power of compounding. And uh, it's that's not what I meant. I, that, That's what I meant. I meant 10 point, I yes. meant $10. Yes. That was, it. it was short. It's like, you know, when you look at a financial statement, it's like $10 in, in yes. millions. It was in parentheses. Million, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. We're, yeah. We're okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Millions was uh, within parentheses. In the parentheses, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you're close enough. But the punchline is what is it on the 29th day? It's actually half of that, right? In, uh, in uh, you know, if I round up the numbers, it's $5.4 million. So, penny becomes on the 29th day, um, becomes 5.4. So, uh, the reason why I say that is. This power of compounding, if you allow it to kind of uh, perform over a long stretch of time, uh, it's an enormous uh, power. Uh, but also, it is back and heavy. You know, um, my undergrad was in math and physics. And uh, if you were to sort of uh, draw this on a chart, it will be what is called as an asymptotic curve, kind of, uh, you know, takes off as uh, time progresses. So that's an important uh, feature that I'm that I'm looking for, you know, because the objective is somewhat steep. And, uh, you know, given my uh, uh, immigrant uh, approach, probably because of that, I do think while U.S. capital markets are still the deepest and the most transparent and a lot more opportunities and all that, um, I do think uh, there are uh, very attractive opportunities outside the U.S. as well. And so uh, it's a global platform. When I say global and outside the U.S., um, I'd like to sort of clarify it by saying, you know, I'm a CPA, I understand the uh, financial, the language of business um, in terms of financials. And so uh, I would like the uh, uh, financials to be following one of two languages, either U.S. GAAP or IFRS, International Financial Reporting Standards. There are, there are a, lot more, a lot of similarities between the two. But there are differences, um, particularly when it comes to real estate, stuff like that. So uh, it, I would like it to be either one of those two. But there are 140 countries that follow IFRS. So I try to sort of funnel down my opportunity by overlaying a couple more constraints. Um, corporate governance in the local market needs to be something comparable to what I can appreciate, most likely to the Western world. And number two, the financials, the entire filings need to be in English, even though Google Translate kind of offers a lot of different opportunities. I don't want to be spending time translating stuff into English. So 
um, that all funnels down the opportunity set to a manageable few uh, countries, uh, not leading me out to, say, Uganda or Nigeria. Nothing wrong with those, but I just don't want to be uh, exposed to those types of markets. So, uh, so, you know, those are the three primary constraints, and that's how I set it up. And, that is, uh, oh, sorry. Yep. Go no, ahead, no, go ahead. You're, no, no, no. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, currently, um, there are 12 securities in the portfolio, and uh, eight of them trade here. They just trade here in the United States. Um, the rest, three of them are in Western Europe, one is in Eastern Europe. So uh, it's, a, it's an eclectic mix of different types of businesses, uh, not exposed to Asia at this point, but looking at a few. Very good. All right. So then when you're looking at a potential new investment, what's some of your criteria going in? You know, you have your your universe of stocks, you know, you got your compounders, you have your special special situations. But then within those two frameworks, you know, what what company that interests you the most? Yeah. So uh, it's a very important question. Um, And uh, the way I will the way I try to think about this is uh, uh, I sort of think about it as a sandbox with four corners and each corner representing a sort of a security question that needs to be answered affirmatively before a business can get into the sandbox. Um, And I'll go through that in a second. But that sandbox, I consider that to be a dynamic system. And as you know, any dynamic system, um, if there are moving parts, more moving parts, then there's a higher likelihood of things going wrong. And so this dynamic system, I want it to be um, not quite static, but at the same time, you know, not have too many moving parts, meaning not too many buys and sells and trades within that sandbox. So I do a lot of work up front trying to, um, you know, make sure that uh, all four questions get answered affirmatively. So, so what are they? Um, you know, number one, and they go in this uh, same sequence. Number one is, uh, is it a business that I can understand? You know, the uh, famous circle of competence question. Um, what, it's, a, it's a famous circle of competence question, but I'm sure what is uh, attractive to me uh, need not necessarily be attractive to you or to um, you know, somebody else. So I sort of know what where my strengths are and I try to remain within it. So I kind of uh, uh, keep away from businesses that either have a, a poor record of uh, industries and businesses that have a poor record of performance and, you know, businesses that uh, I don't understand. Um, you know, when um, uh, Michelangelo was asked the question as to how he created David. Uh, he said, well, I, I actually didn't create David. I just uh, you know, removed all the unwanted pieces from the marble and what remained was David. And that's a fantastic uh, you know, framework to kind of keep in mind, particularly given my approach. My approach is to have a uh, long-term concentrated, not too many bites and cells kind of a portfolio. So, in that process, I kind of keep away from, um, you know, pure energy exploration production companies, mining companies, 
Bitcoin, um, biotech, and even retail, um, even though it's a relatively easy business to understand on paper, um, you know, uh, I kind of uh, stay away from those types of businesses. So that's number one. Uh, that's corner number one. Corner number two is uh, the quality of the business. Um, that's a very important in terms of uh, trying to understand um, various facets of, the, of this uh, word quality. You know, um, I spend a lot of time trying to parse out the details from the financials. A little bit more time on cash flow statement, balance sheet, slightly less time on income statement in that order. Um, but in that, what I'm trying to understand is, um, you know, what are the... So, uh, for example, if I take the income statement, you know, gross margin uh, is a lot more important for me to sort of uh, uh, understand and appreciate the quality of the business. Um, historically speaking, you know, gross margin remains kind of uh, relatively stable as opposed to net margin or operating margin. Um, and so uh, understanding the gross margin component sort of helps me think about the income statement part of the business. On the cash flow, I'm looking for free cash flow. On the balance sheet, I'm looking for businesses with less to no debt. Um, all that with the mindset of, uh, you know, eventually getting uh, a historical context, at least 10 plus years of historical context for uh, return generation. You know, it's not just, uh, if I'm looking to overall portfolio performance, if I'm looking for 15 plus percent return, the underlying businesses need to be generating that. So uh, I'm looking for that healthy kind of return. But on top of it, I'm also looking for businesses that can reinvest. Um, so that's an important aspect of how uh, that quality of the business analysis kind of uh, 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 kind of goes on. So that's number two. Number three is obviously the business that generates this kind of quality needs to be managed by a, a quality management team. And, and sp I spend a lot of time trying to understand the quality of the management team, read the proxies, read the annual letters, um, you know, understand the competitors understand their view of, you know, this particular uh, portfolio company or this particular company that I'm trying to understand. Um, you know, eventually, uh, uh, I'm looking for good ownership interest from the management team, looking for good uh, incentive program, good compensation structure, well aligned. Um, all that is uh, uh, quantitatively defined in the proxy. But I'm also trying to I'm, so, I'm also trying to sort of understand the quality of decision making. You know, particularly when you go back in time, uh, you're able to see what they said five, six, seven years ago and how they have performed. And so all that gives me some confidence about thinking about the future. Um, so that's uh, that's the quality of the management team. And then finally, the fourth corner is valuation. And uh, there I'm looking to pay a reasonable price. Uh, obviously, nobody wants to overpay. Looking to pay a reasonable price for a kind of a business that generates this kind of return, managed well by you know, um, teams with skin in the game and good, well-aligned structures. So those are the types of uh, 
uh, questions that need to get answered. And uh, I sort of keep a very open mind in terms of size of businesses. I, I understand the uh, uh, name of your podcast itself is Planet Microcap. I do have a couple of microcaps, but uh, uh, size is not necessarily a constraint for me. And as I said earlier on, uh, global and uh, you know any size is kind of uh, the approach I take. I don't know if you've thought about this, but like of the, the four pillars, the four corners that you mentioned when it comes to your investment criteria, do you have a ranking? You know, what, 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 do you have one that's more important than the other that you give me? You're like, ah, oh, this valuation, it's really good, but I don't know about management. You know, like, is there, what's that give and take there? Yeah. Uh, uh, life is all about compromise, man. Uh, sure. It's all about compromise. <laughs> and uh, I wish I can get all four of them checkmarked perfectly on every single day. Not a perfect square. Absolutely. Sometimes it's that it's that rhombus. You know, you got you got some things are a little obtuse. Maybe it's a little acute. You know. Uh, yep. There we go. Absolutely. That was a good, that was a good geometry. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Obviously, you know, uh, if I'm answering this question, um, number one question has to be still affirmatively answered, meaning it's a business that I can understand, and so. It becomes a kind of a tug of war between the remaining three questions, quality of the business, quality of the management team, and valuation. And so uh, uh, I sort of rely on Charlie Munger's uh, statement about uh, if you actually, uh, you know, irrespective of what you pay for a business, if the business is generating 20 plus percent return, and if you stay there for a long enough period of time, your return is going to be the return of the business. And um, you know, conversely, even if you are able to pick up a business at a very cheap multiple for a business that is not quite that high quality in terms of either uh, returns or quality in terms of management team, your eventual return, if you stay there long enough, is going to be the return of the business. So that's the approach I take. And so uh, the uh, reordering would be still question number two and three. And that's where I find myself spending more of, most of my time anyway. So you mentioned that, you know, you're a concentrated investor. You do very, very rare. I mean, it's not very rare, but you don't do too many actual trading of buying and selling yeah. out, of your, out of your positions. You know, so then I have to ask, what is the investment process? You find a company that you either like or you find a company that you have in your portfolio. They're like, okay, this isn't this isn't working out. You know, what's your your buy and sell process? Yeah, so uh, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the the process starts with answering these questions uh, that I just uh, listed. And, uh, and then it becomes an evaluation relative to names in the portfolio. Now, fortunately, there are um, only 12 names at this point, and I am working on a couple of them. So if I were to use that example, um, it then becomes a question of, uh, you know, what does it, you know, I, I definitely will not go past 15 names, but uh, I most likely stay closer to the 10 as opposed to the 15. But as I'm thinking about as I'm thinking about adding a particular business to my portfolio, it has to 
beat the uh, you know bottom performing name within the portfolio. You know, most likely in terms of returns, uh, in terms of uh, valuation and quality of uh, management team. So um, it's a constant evaluation. Things move around. Um, so to be very specific, for example, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time within financials. I, you know, bought and sold a bunch of banks and insurance companies for Union Bank of California. Managed their financial services hedge fund before I joined advisory. And even within advisory research, I did spend a little bit of time relative to others within financials. So understanding banks, insurance companies, real estate trusts, they were, you know, uh, it's a it's a uh, good bit of time that I've spent there. And uh, as I launched SVN Capital, and I'll go back to 2018, for example, um, interest rates were poised to go up. Um, in fact, uh, you know, Federal Reserve uh, was uh, making a lot of uh, public announcements about how rates were going to go up. Everything flipped, of course, in 2019 and has been going down. And this year we've had COVID, which has taken rates even further down. Now, I bring that up only because early on, I did have a few more um, uh, rate-sensitive uh, financial services uh, businesses. And at this point, I have just one insurance company within the portfolio, which is rate sensitive somewhat. Uh, it's got group, uh, you know, health and pet insurance, slightly less rate sensitive than what I used to have. So as I'm thinking about uh, uh, the portfolio additions, it's, uh, it's got to beat out the return requirements, the quality requirements, and uh, uh, valuation requirements from within the portfolio. So uh, it's most, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolution. Um, sometimes it can be a um, full-fledged replacement of an existing name. Sometimes it will sort of evolve and develop into a full rate over time. Sorry about that. I was, you know, I was in the, you know, I always tend to find the title of each uh, interview as we're doing it. So I always like to take a second to write it down before I, before I forget, of course. So, you know, I, I, I had to take a second. I'm just curious. What was the title? Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking for this one, it's a concentration, compounding and special situations because it, it, you know, from what I'm hearing when it comes to your approach, it's really disciplined. That's not to say everybody who I have an ad on here has a very disciplined approach. It's, more often, this is like the, you would think everybody was in the military with everybody who I've interviewed on here with how disciplined they are with their investment processes. Um, but, uh, you know, but with yours in particular, you, I mean, I, I also have your presentation pulled up and it's, it's very much, you know, this is how it is. That's not to say it doesn't provide room for creative ideas that you might look at for potential investment. But like, once you zone in on that idea, it's, here we go. Here we go. This is the action. You know, so that's, that's, why I was, that, that's what I, that's what I was pulling from it. You know? Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, um, name, the diligence work up front takes uh, weeks, months. Um, I know I'm, I'm, I was interested in, uh, something that I saw on your podcast where you said within the next couple of weeks, you're going to have something to do with Australia. I am very, very curious about that. 
Um, uh, one of the names I'm actually working on is an Australian name. I don't want to discuss the name, but uh, uh, it's a fantastic market. There are two specific issues that I would be interested in. Uh, I'm gathering data, and I'm uh, really happy that you're going to be presenting something within Australia. They've got the superannuation um, tailwind, which is the pension fund uh, within the country, essentially uh, converting what is a defined benefit into a defined contribution kind of a program. Um, I told you I worked for an insurance company in the mid-90s before B-School. I was uh, an accountant, sort of a traveling controller for that insurance company where we were actually setting up offices around, around the world. Principal Financial Group is the name of the company that I was working for. I don't know if you know Principal. They are the largest 401k provider within the United States. So the objective at that time was for, for, was for Principal to kind of replicate that in many different parts of the world. And uh, I set up offices in uh, Indonesia, Hong Kong, later on ended up in Argentina as well. But uh, in that process, one of the important, uh, uh, you know, important lessons was uh, countries, certain countries were able to manage pension pool for the overall benefit of, uh, uh, you know, for overall benefit of not just the population, but also infrastructure. Singapore and Chile are the two countries that come to mind. Um, but there has been a long gap post those two countries in terms of true pension uh, power. And I do see two countries that kind of uh, have uh, taken on that lead. One is Australia with its superannuation. The other one is uh, in its earlier stages, but I do see some positive trends in Poland. Interesting. So, I mean, so here, let me ask you one more question regarding your strategy and, and this idea of looking at global opportunities. You know, yep. I, I mean, is is this is this because of your, your background that you're like, you know what, I have so much exposure to just around the world, to seeing different things in different parts of the world. You know, is that what has helped you say, you know, I'm not just going to, you know, yeah, I'm in the U.S. right now and I get, there's plenty of U.S. and North American opportunities, but, you know, I know there's also plenty of stuff outside the U.S. and Canada. Is that, is that, is that part of your thought process? Yeah. Um, Bobby, you know, uh, as you were speaking, you kind of cut out, but I got the gist of the question. The question was, how is it that uh, you're thinking about uh, non-U.S. Canada opportunities? Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah. was saying with I was saying with your background, you know, being a global citizen, basically um, having lived in so many different parts of the world, and you know, your 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 mind is is open to things out and opportunities outside. Even though you're in the U.S., you you have an infrastructure in place to look at stuff outside the U.S. and Canada, and and evaluate whether or not there are good investments. Yeah. So uh, you know, early on, I sort of. Uh, I, I sort of knew that uh, uh, whatever platform that I set up will have a global approach. And as I said, partly it's because of my immigrant um, status. Uh, I am an American citizen, but uh, uh, I've seen, uh, you know, for example, uh, if I were to ask you, name 
the top two fastest growing countries in the world over the last 30 years. Take a wild guess. India. It's actually South Korea and Poland. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. And uh, was I off? Uh, was I too off with India? Because I mean, it's been. I mean, I, from what I, my understanding, it's growing very fast. India is growing now, but over the last thirty years, and you know, Poland has been growing approximately at about four percent until this COVID hit. They have actually really not had a recession, just like Australia. But although Australia's growth rate has been slightly lower, um, uh, so that's a you know. Um, it's an interesting statistic, right? And yep. uh, uh, about India I and mean, the fastest growing pool of billionaires in the world, it's actually India right now. I'm not invested in India, looking at that market. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, but when it comes to investing in the, public, uh, in the public market, which is all I do, I don't invest in private businesses. Um, you know, we can, uh, we can see, and my objective is to be, able to uh, continue to look around the corner. Looking around the corner is not easy. I'm not going to be right all the time, um, but I need to continue to look around the corner. And so uh, uh, the desire for businesses, which is essentially human beings, entrepreneurs setting up their businesses, desire to kind of uh, uh, create wealth with whatever business it is that they're involved in. It's global. It's not just America-centric. Um, you know, it's kind of fascinating, right? Um, when uh, when I came to the U.S., um, India was still a socialist country, and uh, there were many challenges. Um, there were uh, quotas that sort of restricted me from moving up through certain channels. Um, of course, there were a lot of uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of uh, you know poor people in the country that administrations were trying to sort of uh, you know lift up, and so they had to institute certain quotas, and which meant it impacted people like me. So a whole bunch of my friends, we all left. Most of us we came to the United States. Some of us went to UK, but we left and we decided to stay back. Right? This is still by far the best country ever. Um, Interestingly enough, the next uh, 15 plus years later, um, you know, I do see my own, you know, my own relatives, either kids of my cousins or kids of my friends. They come here, get educated, and they're now going back. And so what's now happening is uh, within a socialist platform, India is a democratic system, but it still operates with a heavy tinge of socialism. Um, you know, uh, people are getting educated from the Western world and they're going back to set up their own operations. They're not perfect. You're not going to get uh, the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, same kind of treatment that you get uh, uh, in the U.S. I have to be a lot more careful. Um, you know, financials that are audited by Ernst & Young or Deloitte is uh, absolutely um, you know, acceptable for me at this point. Um, the same sort of a financial statement audited by a local auditor, um, you know, will raise a number of different questions. So from those, from those angles, I need to be careful. But uh, the fact remains um, that uh, there are 
there is a big chunk of uh, uh, talent that has continued to go back, not just India. You, know, you see the same thing in China. They call them the turtles that have come back. Uh, you see that in many countries um, that are kind of uh, you know, moving up the ladder. And, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, uh, in my last, I, I have this, uh, I have this, uh, I've created, I would like to continue this tradition of sharing uh, a book with my investors in, along with my year-end uh, letter. Last year I sent, I gave them uh, a copy of this book called Factfulness. Great book by uh, Dr. Hans Rosling. Uh, he's a Swedish doctor. He actually got his medical degree from India. I was very surprised. He spent a lot of time in Africa and uh, um, he came to fame uh, through his 20-minute presentation on TED Talks back in 2006 or 7, uh, a phenomenal uh, presentation. Again, I would highly recommend that as well. But this book, it talks about how um, uh, how our perception of reality is different from reality, and uh, reality being a lot better than our perception. Um, it's a phenomenal book. You know, it talks about uh, uh, it talks about education. It talks about uh, fertility rate. It talks about uh, economic progress. Um, so it's a great book, and uh, it's a all along winded way of saying that uh, there are plenty of opportunities outside of the United States. Currently, as you very well know, uh, particularly over the last three, four, five years now. They've had a good run in the U.S. Uh, stock market, particularly the last couple of years have been driven mostly by this big tech. And uh, as a result, S&P, you know, is it S&P 5 or S&P 500, which is driving the returns? And, uh, and so, um, you know, the similar, similar kind of businesses are available at, in different markets and definitely much better valuation. So that's another reason why I kind of keep an open eye towards opportunities from outside the US. Very good, Shri. All right, so I'd like to close out our interview today with, uh, I'd love to get an anecdote or a story out of you. So, you know, what investing experience would you say has impacted you the most in your career? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um, I'd say the following, yeah. Uh, um, you know, uh, thanks to Mr. David Heller, um, late Mr. David Heller, he founded Advisory Research, took me under his wings, and uh, the chairman, Brian O'Brien, um, they taught me a lot about uh, about investing, about the business of investing, and uh, David Heller, his style, his teachings were uh, very clear. You know, this is going back to the mid-2000s, early to mid-2000s. It was very clear. Go find a cheap stock and then tell me what the, uh, what the business is and uh, uh, we'll make a decision as to whether it's interesting enough. I'm just simplifying the process. So that was the order. You know, valuation first and then the nature of the business next. 
what I've observed from my own, you know, life is all about, uh, particularly in our business of uh, investing, we have to constantly think about uh, evolving. Um, and one major switch I made in that process is flip that order. I now ask, first and foremost, quality of the business. That has to really meet my threshold from a variety of different angles. And I start with quality before I get down to evaluation. And uh, by that, I'm not necessarily saying I'm looking for similar type of cheap single-digit PE or low price to book, low EV to EBITDA kind of multiples, willing to pay a fair price, but it's got to meet a phenomenal return and reinvestment threshold. So. Um, it's a long, it's a long answer to a very simple question, but that um, that lesson, you know, lit a really big light bulb. And since then, the type of businesses that I've started looking at is, has evolved tremendously. That's partly another reason why I have started looking global. Very good. Well. Sri, we're there. So where, where can my audience go and find more information about you and SVN Capital? A couple of places. Um, website is svncapital.com. I'm also on Twitter. Twitter handle is also SVN Capital. Um, but uh, Bobby, thanks a lot for uh, having me uh, on your fantastic uh, platform. I see some great names. Good luck to you. Certainly looking forward to listening to your Australia presentation. And uh, I would love to circle back with you uh, personally after that to learn a little bit more. Absolutely. Well, Sri, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And uh, I'm, you'll be coming back. Uh, we'll, we'll see you on here again. That's for sure. All right. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks <laughs> thank for having you, me. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.